Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. This episode is jointly presented by the Academy and Medidata. On September 30th and October 1st of 2015, the Academy and Medidata co-hosted an event looking at a set of potential solutions to a serious and persistent problem in healthcare the cost of doing medical research. It's honestly staggering how much a company that has a great idea for a new medicine has to spend to turn that idea into a legally marketable drug. Want to guess the average price? Half a million dollars? A million? Ten million? Keep going. Here's Michelle Kruthamel, a project manager at GlaxoSmithKline. Across the pharma industry, in average, um, it costs about $2 billion to develop a single drug from the target to market. And that $2 billion, um, a lot of it actually spent in the clinical trial phase. Clinical trials are the part of drug development where something that has worked under laboratory conditions is now being tested in the field, given to real patients so its effectiveness can be assessed in humans in the real world. And almost everyone from all angles of drug development, researchers, doctors, the pharma industry, even the FDA, all agree that the way that the information from these studies is collected and processed is staggeringly inefficient. And that this inefficiency is a huge part of the enormous cost of conducting these studies. Here's Dr. Brooke Gridlinger, the Academy's Executive Director of Scientific Programs. It's interesting, given all the technology that we have available at our fingertips today, that the clinical trials process, when you peel back the onion, is really rooted in technology from the 1980s. Uh, a lot of patients that participate in clinical trials have to drive to a, a physical trial site. They might do that once a month or even on a, a more recurring basis and have to personally have a, a visit with a physician. And the results of that visit are, are often captured in antiquated technologies. And by antiquated technologies, we're not talking about Windows 2000. We're talking about writing down data by hand on paper. And so we're already excluding a lot of the population who might otherwise have been willing to participate in a study by making them travel. Maybe they have a job and can't take a day off every month or every week. Or maybe as patients, they're, you know, sick and travel is difficult. And then also, once that data is collected, it's got to be recorded by hand, processed by hand, and transmitted from one place to another by methods like courier and fax machine. Here's Dr. Tomasz Sablinski, founder of a company called Transparency Life Sciences. If you ever go to a hardcore clinical research operation conference, the topic, they're talking about increasing security of <clears throat> paper-based documents. You'll hear people talking about reducing number of <clears throat> pages that are faxed. This is the topic that excites people at clinical operations. <laughs> uh, number of um, transactions that have been introduced through years into a simple transaction, which should be, I'm a patient, you're a database. Data goes straight from one to another, is now requiring 500 different transactions, many paper-based, a lot of queries, a lot of mistakes. And it gets worse. 
because in many studies, some or all of the data is collected remotely by the patients themselves. Assessing the long-term daily effects of treatment for a chronic condition, for instance. It has to be like this, because you can't ask someone to live in the hospital for two years. But this is not only inefficient, it's also just plain lousy, because patients are really bad at keeping accurate notes about their own health. As an example, in epilepsy research, the gold standard for collecting information about whether a particular treatment is working or not is for patients to keep a handwritten diary of whether or not they had a seizure on a particular day. Here's Dr. John Hickson, an epilepsy researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. So uh, we know that the current information that's used in my specific area of epilepsy is pretty poor. It's all based on paper-based diaries, which ultimately are uh, rooted in self-report from patients, their family members, and their caregivers. And we know from very good studies that have been around for a while now that patients are horrible at recognizing their own seizures. If you take all seizures in aggregate, and there are many different kinds of seizures, um, patients only have about a 50% rate of accurately identifying a seizure. And that's in studies that have looked at their uh, recognition of the seizure the day after it occurred. We already know that in clinical trials, the data that's collected on a paper-based form often allows a patient to go a week or even more before they're asked to fill out a form and bring it into the hospital. And this results in what's been traditionally called the parking lot effect, where a patient is at the, at the doctor's office and is about to bring in their paper diary and is ferociously filling out their paper form, trying to recall whether they had a seizure in the past week or not. So we know that this data currently is very poor. And yet this is what is used in every epilepsy trial today. And you'll notice, even though they're collecting this information on their own at home, the patients in these particular studies are still having to deliver these handwritten diaries to the study center in person. So it's inefficient, inaccurate, and inconvenient. A trifecta. And it seems so obvious. Even if we're not going to deal with the problems inherent in self-reported data, why not at least get rid of the handwritten diary? This is 2015, we have the internet. Why not make a web portal or a mobile app they can use to record the data, or at least send it in by email? It'd be so much easier for everyone. And honestly, from the outside, the way the research community holds on to outdated technologies can seem downright ridiculous. It's not at all unusual for the rules of a particular study to say things like, yes, you can fill out this questionnaire at home, but it has to be filled out by hand. And when you're done, you can't scan it in email and you have to send it in by fax. Or, you have to check in once a week with the research team by phone, but you can't use a mobile phone, you have to find a landline. Or even something totally Byzantine like, you can send the information by email, but if you do, you also have to print out a copy, put it in an envelope, and send it by snail mail as a backup. Here's Dr. Sablinski again. I compare what they're doing to, if you walk to a bank which had ATM, but before you used it, you had to speak to a human being, a cashier, who will fill a form and say, now you can use ATM, and then after you've used it, you will have to go and validate that the transaction happened. Asking patients who agree to participate in these clinical trials to forget that they live in 21st century and go back to 20th century. That's the world of clinical trials. Here's Bernard Munoz, who studies these issues for Faster Cures, a center of the Milken Institute. So, this is where we are 
in pharma today with a, what I would call a grand misallocation of resources. And that's been a major driver of the extreme prices that we're seeing today. With $100,000 per pill no longer being an aberration, unfortunately. And here's Dr. Siblinski again. And this is a crisis of existential proportions. And if you talk to CEOs of pharma and biotechs and all those people who know what clinical trials cost and will cost, will agree that continuing this type of economical trajectory is not going to uh, make this industry survive. So why doesn't the industry just change? Start building digital data collection systems? Well, it's complicated. And the deepest reason is probably the profound anxiety that's inherent in designing a research study. The FDA, or whatever government agency has authority over the kind of product you're testing, has to approve every step of your process. What exactly you're trying to prove, which is known in the trade as your clinical endpoint, what group of people you're going to be testing, aka your cohort, and every point about what you're going to administer and how, and how you're going to gather the information about whether you've met that specific endpoint. And the regulators can sometimes approve everything at the beginning and then decide at the end that something should have been done a different way and therefore reject the results. And all of this is well and good. It should be hard to get a new medicine approved. You can really hurt people if you mess it up. But it means that designing a new study is a tremendously stressful process for the researchers involved and that they are extremely reluctant to change something that's worked in the past. Here's Dr. Hickson. There's a concern that if you make just a simple miscalculation in the way you design a trial, that you torpedo the entire venture. History is littered with trials that, frankly, were just poorly designed. It doesn't necessarily mean that the compound didn't work. And when it comes to things like uh, the diaries, that's the one element that you don't have to worry about because the paper diaries are all set. They all use the same paper diaries, the guidelines are quite clear, and the FDA accepts it. You're giving them exactly the information that you know they want. So when you're going down your checklist of trial design, you can focus your time worrying about all the other things that you think could potentially torpedo your trial. So I think that that planning really forces most companies to, at the end of the day, despite the fact that they may be willing and want to do this, that they back off because of that conservative approach. But despite the risks, both real and perceived, some people are making changes and finding ways to use modern technology in clinical trials and other kinds of medical research. And to say that some of the initial results have been promising would be a gross understatement. Staggering might be a better word. With an example, here's Dr. Pei Wang from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York. Her group wanted to do an epidemiological study of people with asthma to capture information like how often they had an attack, how often they needed to use an inhaler, or as she calls it, a puff, and how often they needed to visit the doctor. This is the kind of data that would traditionally be captured on a paper diary, like the ones Dr. Hickson described for use with epilepsy. But instead, Dr. Wang and her colleagues made use of an app called Research Kit to develop a mobile study largely conducted over the internet. Here she is describing it. 
There are three survey forms. It's kind of we call them time course survey data, uh, which is popped up either daily or weekly or every three months. So in those survey forms, we um, kind of help the users to keep track of their daily activities. For example, in the daily survey form, um, the users need to fill out whether they have day symptoms, whether they have night symptoms in the previous night, whether they used a puff during that day, and so on, similar questions. And in the weekly survey forms, we basically ask the patient to kind of review um, the activities in the past week and to report whether they have um, whether they visited doctors, whether they have encountered any activity limitations, um, and so on. And they packaged this electronic diary in a kind of ingenious way, as an app that feeds the data back to the patients in a form that's useful to them. Hey, here's a reminder that it's time to take your medicine. Or, it's been three weeks since your last doctor visit, how are you feeling? And even... Based on your location, here's today's air quality. You might want to bring your inhaler when you leave the house. This kind of feedback loop of data between researcher and subject is really exciting because it makes participating in a research study something that makes a person's life easier, not more difficult. Here's Glenn DeVries, president of Medidata, a company that specializes in developing these kind of high-tech research solutions. I think one of the really interesting things that's going to happen is not only will be people uh, be pulling data from patients um, in that kind of rigorous clinical trial environment to get information about them, but people will start to then process that data and figure out um, what to transmit back to a patient to get them to um, behave and um, be compliant with medication and lifestyle changes in the most effective way possible to get the best possible medical outcomes. And it's one of the things that uh, I think will just fundamentally change the way um, pharmaceutical companies, biotechs, and medical device companies think. It will change the way regulators think. And interestingly, I think it will ultimately change the way payers think um, because it will be related to real measurable socioeconomic value. In addition, because it lives on a mobile app, Dr. Wang's study was able to collect data that no paper-based study could, like what the air quality was that day and how physically active the patients were, based not on self-report but on actual information collected in real time, like real-time weather reports and records of how much they moved around, all info that a smartphone can collect easily. But maybe the most exciting thing about this study was how accessible it was and the number of people they were able to enroll. Already, we have almost um, um, 49,000 downloads of the app, and among them, um, 7,500 participants actually passed the enroll criterion and was consented and enrolled in the study. So those are um, very exciting numbers for us. Now, 7,500 people may not seem like that big a number, especially compared to the number of people who might use an app. The best-selling mobile apps routinely get millions of downloads. But for a medical study, it's a huge number. Comparable to the number of people who participated in the Center for Disease Control's recent nationwide asthma survey, which took many years to set up, hundreds of people to run, and cost exponentially more than this study, which was entirely done by a small team at a single lab. So just imagine, in the past, if we want to conduct a 
survey with thousands of people that really needs tremendous manpower and time and money. But now within this app, we are able to collect those useful informations from thousands of people with minimum cost and, and in a very short time period. So this is really um, makes many people very exciting that we are facing this revolution of doing epidemiology study. Here's Dr. Sablinski reacting to Dr. Wang's presentation. Uh, it leaves anything that I've seen ever in my long life in clinical research in the dust. You, you, to get that number of patients to participate in such a short time with the cost, um, this, this would, um, CRO would charge you probably a million and a half to get to this, and it will take them about a year and a half. And quality of data that they would collect um, using paper-based um, and, and, and uh, fax machines uh, would be worse. So this is, this is a jet engine-powered plane flying over Atlantic versus a steamboat. And here's Mr. Munoz. We're now talking about million patient cohorts. Why? Because it's possible. Uh, I think the, 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 uh, the yield uh, to, to science is going uh, to be awesome. So that's one revolutionary improvement offered by the use of new technology in these kinds of studies. Now let's look at another. Because so far, we are still talking about studies that are basically self-report. Taking out your phone, logging into an app and answering questions. Augmented a little bit with some of the information that smartphones are already set up to collect, like location data. But what if we went back to the drawing board completely, forgot about phones, and said, how can we collect the most data possible about what's actually happening in a person's body? Well, there's a huge amount modern technology can do with things like sensors. The amount of data they can collect in a laboratory now is really kind of unbelievable. Here's Mr. DeVries again. And trials being run, this is an example that, that uh, we did with uh, GlaxoSmithKline, as well as some of the people from McLaren, the car company that instruments Formula One cars. And we instrumented patients to the point that we were gathering about a gigabyte of data per patient per hour. So in a couple hours, you can gather more data than most large pharmas would gather in a year across all of their clinical trials. Now again, a gigabyte of data per minute might not seem like a jaw-dropping figure in the multiple terabyte world we live in today. But to put it in perspective, according to the FDA, over the course of six weeks, this study collected more data points than all previous medical research put together. I mean, wow. But this study was done in time-limited sessions in a lab, where you can stick as many electrodes on someone as you like and not have to worry about whether they can move around and do things. What if you could apply monitoring like that in an unobtrusive way, so you could capture real-time information about someone's health as they're going about their daily business? For one thing, you'd have the potential to solve all of the problems we talked about with clinical trials. Easier recruitment, better data collection, and on and on. Here's Dr. John Master Totaro, Vice President of Informatics at Medtronic, a medical device company. 
absolutely. So recruiting online, getting informed consent online, uh, the data from the device is beaming up to, into the cloud automatically. And you can imagine the, the opportunities to reduce the costs associated with trials and, open, and also expand uh, maybe the number of patients that, that would be uh, in a trial and get closer to the real world use. Uh, as we heard about earlier, to make these things not so artificial, but make them more and more like the real world. And you can do all this while the patient is staying at home. So you're solving the inconvenience problem too. Hey, if the patient can be managed at home and not have to go to the doctor's office, take a half day off from work, pay for parking, deal with traffic, all the rest of it, it's a big deal. It lowers the burden on the patient to be able to have things driven toward the home. The costs of care are going to be dramatically lowered as we can push everything back toward the home. And, and I think the burden on the overall healthcare system in terms of the shortage of physicians we heard about earlier and others, again, will be effective positively. And the quality of data you could collect with continuous real-world monitoring is so much better than what we're doing now. For example, look at something like monitoring ambulatory function, which is a couple of 10-cent words for how well someone can walk. It's a key metric for the advance of dozens of diseases, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and multiple sclerosis. For MS and some others, the test that's done now is having the patient come to the doctor's office and walk 20 or 25 feet in a straight line, while a nurse or technician watches and decides if they're doing better or worse than last time. Here's Dr. Sablinski. Come on, this is 18th century. You come to the clinic and in the busy hallway, you go 12.5 and 12.5. In the meantime, a, a, a nurse is, okay, better than last time. Every six weeks in a year-long trial. After you've driven three hours, waited in the, in the crowded room with people who are equally miserable as you, what does it measure? It measures nothing. You ask FDA, and they say, it's nonsense. You ask physicians who do it in clinical trials, they say, it's nonsense. You ask sponsors, they say, it's nonsense. But it's always been like that. If we could achieve continuous monitoring, we'd have the potential of a hundred better ways of determining how well someone is getting around by watching them actually get around. And then maybe we could even send information back to the patient about how to better monitor their own disease. Things like, come into the doctor, it looks like it might be time to change your medication. The possibilities are really endless. The ability to send a text to a person with a heart arrhythmia that says, it looks like something is wrong, come to the hospital. Or even, it looks like something is wrong, sit down and do X, Y, Z, we've already called an ambulance. Which brings us to the most amazing part. This kind of technology might be able to solve one of the most ancient, fundamental, and seemingly intractable problems in medicine. Diseases start small and then grow, and they're easier to treat the earlier you catch them. But a doctor generally only gets the opportunity to begin treatment after a problem has developed to the point that the patient notices that something is wrong. And that can be too late. And the same problem applies to research. We only begin doing cancer studies on someone after we know they have cancer. And so we have almost no data at all about what was going on inside someone during the time that cancer was developing. Here's Mr. Munoz again. The problem with medicine is that it starts with a clinical event, but many diseases brew inside the patient for years before they become clinical. 
At the moment, we don't have any data or hardly any data on you know, that preclinical, pre-symptomatic phase. And therefore, there's precious little that we can do. Biosensors, wearables, offer the promise to generate all kinds of data and store all kinds of data um, on the years during which patients are pre-symptomatic. So that's, you know, if I come down with something five years from now, I've got all kinds of data that my physician can look at to try to understand what may have happened when things got off track. And uh, in many cases, this is quite valuable to put together a therapy that will be more effective. As far as we've come, though, there are some huge obstacles to achieving the full potential of this kind of technology. And they exist on many levels, from the technical to the philosophical. So let's start with the technical. As cool as all of this would be, the truth is that the wearable devices we have at this moment, from bracelets and smartwatches like the Fitbit and the iWatch, through things like patches and implantable devices, aren't really up to the task. Here's Dr. Veena Misra from North Carolina State University. This really requires us to go beyond the Fitbits of today and really requires us to get, uh, get a much better uh, idea of what's happening on the body and also over long periods of time. We really need to enable users to wear these devices continuously so we can get trends in their per personal health profile and also changes that they experience in their lifetime. But there are several difficult and complex engineering problems that still stand between us and these hypothetical next-generation sensors. High power consumption, which leads to limited lifetime, limited functionality of the data that's coming out of there, uh, limited sensor modalities, uh, inaccuracy in the data that's coming out, and limited user value. And all these com uh, properties or challenges combined make it rather ineffective uh, at least uh, looking out in the future for these wearable devices to address the healthcare need as it's needed, as, as it pertains to for the crisis facing us today. Let's start with the first of these challenges, which may be the most difficult from an engineering standpoint. And that's power, as in battery life. The battery in the current generation of Fitbits, for instance, can only do GPS tracking for 10 hours before it needs to be recharged. And that's not nearly enough. Here's Christian Stammel, the CEO of a company called Wearable Technologies, which is trying to address these exact problems. If we are talking about medical devices and elderly people, for example, who have to use these devices, how to charge these devices for these elderly people? I mean, you, you, you stitch a patch on, on, on your grandmother and it's there. So if you have to charge it every second day, this is impossible. Current thinking in the industry is that a medical device would have to carry a charge for at least a week to be commercially viable. And current battery technologies either don't last long enough or are too big to be put in a wearable device. Some engineers are looking beyond batteries to see if power can be harvested from the environment around the device, perhaps directly from the human body. Here's Dr. Misra, whose team is looking into just that possibility. This is a very difficult problem. There's not a lot of power that's available from the body. Uh, we want to maximize as much of it as we can so we can put it into the sensors to make these platforms uh, functional. And the best way to do that, at least for that, for that we have found so far, is body heat. And in this particular case, we, can we are building flexible thermoelectric uh, uh, legs, 
uh, TEG legs that are based out of bismuth telluride nanocomposite materials. And so here's an example of the kind of kinds of issues that one has to consider when putting a harvester on the body and the, all the losses that might happen. Others are looking wider to something called electrosmog, which is the latent electromagnetic fields that are given off by things like computers and TVs and cell phones. Here's Mr. Stammel. We just recently had a presentation um, in Toronto about energy harvesting uh, over the air, let's say over electrosmog. This is for sure something which will need still some years to go, but I think it's a nice approach to say, okay, we have all so much electrosmog out of, uh, around us, you could even use this small uh, piece of energy to run a small kind of sensor uh, in the future. Neither of these approaches is going to be ready anytime soon, unfortunately. And so the power issue remains. And almost as difficult are the twin issues of the sensitivity and cost of sensor technologies. As things stand, the kind of sensors that would capture the data researchers would really like to have are, generally speaking, too expensive and too fragile to make available in large quantities. This problem might be addressed by exploring new materials. Maybe there are more efficient ways to build this kind of stuff. Here's Ian Ferguson, Vice President for Worldwide Marketing and Strategic Alliances at ARM, a mobile technology company. And one of the things that I'm really excited about on, on technology that I think is going to make a difference is uh, printing uh, of circuits onto plastic. Um, so um, you, you, can't, you can't get lots of gigahertz and all that sort of stuff if you're doing it on, onto plastic. But there is a, a very interesting dynamic happening now where you can put some technology incredibly cost-effectively down onto, onto plastic. And that's going to mean instead of a, a relatively rigid chip, it's going to be flexible. You're going to see that get integrated down into, into shirts and things like that. And if all you're doing is um, uh, picking up technology of some sensors coming out of the skin, um, performance-wise, you're going to be okay. And I, I think that sort of flexibility of the circuitry is, is really going to help open it up into, into some new spaces. And some of the most science fiction-sounding work on new materials for wearable devices is actually being done with one of the most ancient materials known to man, silk. Here's Dr. Fiorenzo Omanetto of Tufts University, whose team is dedicated to exploring the high-tech possibilities of silk. If you look at the process of generation of silk, it is a, it is a biopolymer synthesis process that takes uh, something that is water-based and through simple control of variables uh, transforms it into, a, into something that has high-tech qualities. And so if we take native materials and native proteins and we go back to the liquid formulation of, uh, of silk, so we, st so we take the natural fibers, we melt them down, and we dissolve them, and we go back to a solution of water and fibroin protein, we have a liquid to begin with, and then by controlling the removal of water and the self-assembly of this, of, this, uh, of this molecule of the fibroin protein, you can get to multiple formats of materials, multiple formats of materials that then generate multiple forms that may be uh, more suited to the interface, to this, to this uh, biotic-abiotic interface. Let me take a shot at translating that. Silk is made by silkworms, which are actually the caterpillars of a moth called Bombyx mori. They make strands out of it from a liquid they secrete from their bodies, and they use these strands for building their cocoons. For about 5,000 years or so, 
Humans have been taking these strands and weaving cloth out of them. A cloth that's very soft and very strong, and also made of animal stuff. So it's especially easy to sterilize and make work and play well with the animal stuff in our bodies. And so for almost that long, we've been using silk to make sutures to sew up wounds. What Dr. Omanetto is talking about is melting those strands back down into a liquid and then drying that liquid out to create other kinds of things, other shapes of raw animal stuff that are light, strong, sterile, and even edible. By making circuitry out of gold, which is also edible, you could theoretically make entire small data collection devices that are edible, disposable, and cheap. And so could, for instance, send out data to a waiting computer as they traveled safely through someone's GI tract. And if that's not cool, I don't know what is. Here's Mr. DeVries. We are talking about science fiction um, kinds of ideas, and they're happening in biology today. And that kind of basic research is, as I think all of us in the room well know, is going to translate into um, things that appear to be miraculous from a therapeutic perspective. All of these new little miracles, though, face a serious obstacle in activating in the field successfully. And that's convincing people that they want to use them. And there are a couple of very good reasons why that might not be so easy. The first is that people basically have limited room in their lives for new gizmos, and they're pretty fickle about the ones they choose to keep around for the long term. The ubiquity of smartphones is the exception. Most new devices have a short burst of popularity, or maybe notoriety, see Google Glass, in which a few hundred or a few thousand people buy them, and then they kind of go away. Fitbit, the exercise data bracelet, is the most popular example of a wearable biodata collection device, and it's remained around and available, but hasn't really become ubiquitous the way a really successful tech device does. Here's Mr. Ferguson. You also see wearables entering this sort of hype, hype cycle of disappointment, right? Um, I, I don't know how many of you use uh, Fitbits. I work in tech. I don't wear one. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have tried one and put it back in the drawer, right? They, they change their behavior, right? Um, and uh, after a while, they're like, yeah, actually, I know I haven't been exercising that much, or yes, I have. Uh, it changes the behavior, and, and they put it back in the drawer. Um, uh, a guy once coined, I think, the, uh, a really good term, which is the turnaround test. And uh, that's it. You leave your house, and you haven't brought your wearable with you. Are you going to turn around, go back to the house, and pick it up? And I think fundamentally at the moment, the wearables are, are not passing that test right now. One way to address this is to create those feedback loops we discussed earlier by making the data as useful to the study subject as it is to the researcher. Here's Mr. Stammel. This could be only be overcome by you giving the consumer a meaningful data. And a meaningful data could only come out if you are connecting your body or your wearable device with the creator environment, with the system around you. And therefore, you have to go in an approach which means body to cloud. Connecting the wearable data directly or your body data directly with the cloud gives this data to the cloud. In the cloud, you can create the meaningful data for the customer, for the consumer, or for the patient because it's connected to additional information systems. But doing that 
will require these new wearables, whatever they are, to either interact with someone's smartphone, which limits the people from whom you can collect data to those who can afford smartphones, or to have a lot of the same functionality as a smartphone, which at the moment would make them prohibitively expensive and also prohibitively large. The idea of wearing a one-inch patch on your shoulder for six months is easier to swallow than if it were something the size and weight of an iPhone. These wearables, whatever they are, are also going to have to be comfortable and either invisible or stylish, or people just won't want to wear them. Which means user-friendly interfaces and attractive design are going to become paramount concerns. And these, frankly, are not things that either biomedical researchers or the healthcare system are very good at. But the biggest problem around collecting medical data with mobile devices might very well be the issue of privacy. What's happening to all that information once it's collected? And who actually owns it all to begin with? If you have a patch collecting information about your heart rate and sending it to a research study, does that data belong to you, to the people who made the device that's collecting it, or to the people running the study? And with whom may any or all of those parties share that information, with or without the permission of the others? As is often the case with brand new technologies, the law hasn't really caught up with questions like this yet, or even the question of who's responsible for regulating devices like these. As devices that are part science, part healthcare, part media, part entertainment, part clothing, part who knows what, solid answers about what's actually allowed and what isn't is at the moment hard to find in the alphabet soup of Washington regulatory agencies. Here's Linda Malik, an attorney with the law firm of Moses and Singer, who's been trying to make sense of this question. There is a gap between all of these regulatory bodies. They don't necessarily all talk to each other. Um, I've had many situations where we'll be reviewing guidance or regulation from, say, the NIH that will refer to HIPAA, and then I'll talk to regulators at OCR who will say, oh, that's interesting, they never talked to us about this, this does, it's not going to work. Um, so there is a gap, and what we try to recommend is to try to employ a best practices approach to, to anticipate how much is evolving in this area of the law. As it stands, many of the people who are dipping a toe into collecting this kind of data are using the same approach to data privacy as some social media sites, which is something like, we tell you what we're doing with this information here on the fine print of page 16 of our terms of use form, and if you signed it and don't like it, it's your problem. But as we all know, and has been proved again and again, no one actually reads all the terms and conditions when they sign up to use a new tech product. As misguided as it may be, people at the moment just sort of trust that if it's a known and reputable company, they couldn't be doing anything too terrible. And so for medical data, information that tells stories about the most private parts of someone's life, from their sex life to how long they're likely to live, there really has to be a higher standard. Because if the industry does something to lose that trust, people are going to rebel in a way that could derail this whole idea and all the good it has the potential to do. Right now, um, there is a lot of trust that people have that, that their information is not going to be used for the wrong purpose. And so I think it's just important for all of us to remember that 
that because we are entrusted with that confidence, um, we really have the responsibility to be proactive in this area and to anticipate the laws before, before they actually um, develop so that we have sort of set up a scenario where when the law catches up, we're, we're already there, we're ahead of the game. Here's Brian Bott from a nonprofit called Sage Bionetworks, which collaborated with Apple to develop that research kit app, which we mentioned earlier. This includes a set of tools for establishing the informed consent of the participants that many are hailing as a model of how this kind of consent should properly be collected. Is participant-centered consent, so a consent process um, that really uh, has, has the participant at the center as opposed to um, the institution that is trying to cover their rear ends. There's tiered information that can be accessed by participants. Uh, it's pictorial dominant uh, on the first layer, it's text dominant on the second, and then we actually give them a, sh a short assessment at the tail end and we uh, require that actually all participants get all of the questions right in order to have actually consented to the study. We talk about how we will try to protect their data and how that is being done, specifically with where the data is being stored and who is getting access to the data. And ultimately, we talk to them about their risks, the risks to their privacy. And we say that we'll make every effort that we can to protect the inf information, but we provide no guarantee of anonymity. And what Mr. Bott and his team have discovered is that when they're honest and upfront about the risks, and give people real options and control over their own information, people are willing to share that information, not only with the people involved in the current study, but with future studies as well. At the very end, after they go through consent, they're uh, given these sharing options. They say that um, you can share, share the data just with this uh, research team and its partners, or uh, you can share my data with Sage, its partners, and any qualified researchers worldwide. And not surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, it certainly wasn't surprisingly to us, um, over 70% across all five of those initial studies chose to share broadly. Um, and just to give you a sense of scale, across these five studies, there have been over 75,000 participants in the past six months. Meaning that in the end, asking people nicely might be a more effective way of gathering data than trying to steal it from them. And maybe that's where the solution to all of these issues lies. In the research community, learning to see the subjects of these studies not as guinea pigs, but as partners. Intelligent, rational people who are interested in advancing science and in improving their own health. Here's Dr. David Magnus from the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics. They may have a little lip service about the importance of getting um, part, uh, uh, engaging with patients and participants in other ways, but for the most part, they're still their vision is still people represent represent data. The public are data that's going to come to them as researchers, and a small number of researchers are going to take advantage of all this data that's going to be able to accumulate it. And I, I actually think looking forward, the nature of research is going to probably be changing in more profound ways than that. And this technology is, I think, going to even push that even further, where instead of having data collected and going back to the researchers, I think it's going to be much more of a two-way street, and we're going to really see the rise of citizen science and the public and patients play much more active role in the actual development of that research.
Here's Mr. Munoz. Whoever controls data collection in clinical research basically controls clinical research. You cannot do clinical research without data. Uh, so I think patients have started to assert their greater influence over the system by pushing on the system values that are important to them. One of them is speed. Patients don't, don't want to be told that they have to wait 15 years to get a therapy. We've seen it with the AIDS patient, and we're seeing it now with the uh, rare disease patient, and we're going to see it even more in the near future. Patients want treatment now. Patients also want research that is relevant to them, that means something to them. Medicalized endpoints, you know, the changes in microscopic lesion, that doesn't mean anything to them. Give them endpoints that are patient-friendly and I think their willingness to enroll in trial will be dramatically enhanced. Patient also wants transparency. Hidden stuff doesn't sound right. They like convenience. They don't want to have to travel to a hospital and wait and then be poked and uh, stressed. So things like teleservices, telemedicine, remote monitoring uh, is something that is important to them and they will, we can expect them to demand it increasingly. Uh, they want treatment to be personalized. You know, it's my health, my data, my own treatment. And, and lastly, uh, they want innovation, of course, to be affordable. So as the uh, patients become more central to the clinical research enterprise, I think we can expect those values to, kick, to take increasing importance uh, in clinical research. And in the end, all of these problems, technical and ethical, will get solved. Because the potential for collecting medical data in this way is just too extraordinary. Literally doubling and redoubling and redoubling the amount of data available to scientists who are trying to cure humanity's most debilitating diseases. Uh, it's a smart, smarter way to do drug R&D. It's a smarter way to practice medicine. And it's a smarter way to regulate all that for the folks at FDA and elsewhere who oversee those activities. And I would propose that uh, smart beats dumb every time. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast, a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences www.nyas.org. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Brooke Gridlinger, Melanie Brickman-Steins, and Daniel Radiloff. Special thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode, Michelle Kruthamal of GlaxoSmithKline, Tomasz Sablinski of Transparency Life Sciences, John Hickson of the University of California, San Francisco, Bernard Munoz of Faster Cures, Pei Wang of the Icon School of Medicine, Glenn DeVries of Metadata, John Master Totaro of Medtronic, Vina Misra of North Carolina State University, Christian Stammel of Wearable Technologies, Ian Ferguson of ARM, Fiorenzo Omanetto of Tufts University, Linda Malik of the law firm of Moses and Singer, Brian Bott of Sage Bionetworks, and David Magnus of Stanford University. 
All the quotes used in this episode were collected at the event Mobile Health, the power of wearables, sensors, and apps to transform clinical trials, held at the New York Academy of Sciences on September 30th and October 1st of 2015. That event and this podcast were made possible by the generous support of Medidata. You can hear complete presentations from that conference and many others on a wide variety of scientific topics via the Academy's e-briefings, www.nyas.org slash e-briefings.